0: From your favorite podcatchers and our YouTube channel featuring scenic videos, this is Kaiju Vision Radio, Episode 3, Gojira. Kaiju lovers and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of giant monster movies
1: and discovering their historical and cultural value.
0: I'm Nathan Marchand and I'm Brian Scherchel. And today we get started on our Godzilla journey. We will be talking about the original Japanese masterpiece from
1: 1954, Gojira. I'm so excited to do this movie. It's the big one, the really big one. These are part of what I would call the serious fifties in that we have a lot of uh, very serious films. And so you end up with all of the humor being later in the podcast episodes. And for right now, we end up being concentrated on uh, the more serious topics as the movies are more serious. Our related topic for this episode is part one of two of our discussion about the occupation of Japan by the United States. Let's quickly bring our audience up to speed on this amazing film, and then we will move on to discussion. You're listening
0: to Kaiju Visionary.
1: Godzilla is a force of nature awakened by nuclear testing. After destroying shipping and fishing vessels and appearing on Odo Island twice, he later comes ashore in Tokyo with no apparent motivation. The military fires on him, which makes him destructive. The subsequent night, he defeats the self-defense force and angrily decimates Tokyo. Dr. Sarazawa is a scarred, reclusive, younger scientist who lost an eye in the war and wears a patch. He has invented a super weapon called the Oxygen Destroyer that can be used to kill Godzilla. Dr. Yamane is a paleontologist commissioned by the government to investigate Godzilla. He is against destroying Godzilla because he believes there is much to learn from studying him. Serizawa is in an arranged engagement to Yamane's daughter Emiko, but she is in love with a sailor named Ogata. The kaiju plot drives the human plotline as the story progresses. Godzilla's actions propel the love triangle subplot between Serizawa, Emiko, and Ogata to its conclusion. The Japanese self-defense forces deploy depth charges, but Godzilla is unaffected. They then erect an electrified barrier to try to repel him, but he melts a tower and breaks through. They respond by attacking him with tanks and fighter planes, which he destroys. The problem is solved when Serizawa burns his research and deploys the oxygen destroyer underwater, killing Godzilla and himself. The story is simple, with the kaiju plot and human subplot becoming unified by the end. The characters are clearly defined, and the messages of the film are straightforward. With a healthy budget, the effects crew, led by Eiji Tsuburaya, employed innovative and convincing special effects like Suitmation, puppetry, miniatures, matte paintings, and animations. Godzilla is a dark film, shot almost documentary style, with the intention of eliciting a high-gravity, bleak response in the audience, reminiscent of the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the firebombing of Tokyo during the war. Between fantasy and reality, it's more on the side of depicting extraordinary events in a realistic setting. The film is revolutionary and unique, combining elements of both King Kong and The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, and then going further by exploring distinctly Japanese themes and symbols. This film introduced Japan to Godzilla, changing Japanese cinema forever. By establishing the special effects techniques and style that would be seen in the Godzilla series and the kaiju genre for a very long time, the film effectively created the kaiju genre as it is known today. It was intended to turn the page on the occupation era by helping the Japanese people confront their post-war feelings and anxieties head-on. It expresses opinions of the Japanese as they realize newfound freedom of expression after the censorship of the occupation. The film was a huge success, making twice as much as its budget and created a cultural phenomenon that lasts to this day. One third of the movie was cut when making the American version, mostly political content, and historical references. Because the differences are so distinct, we will address the American version in the next episode. This movie is a nationalist film in that it allowed Japanese to think of themselves as victims of the United States without ever mentioning the United States. It communicates the Japanese national spirit by expressing anti-nuclear sentiment and post-war pacifism that were dominant in Japanese society at the time, particularly by having Dr. Sarazawa uninvent a superweapon that he has invented, which is not possible in real life with nuclear weapons. This is in direct contrast to the Cold War nuclear arms race going on between the United States and the Soviet Union. The moral of the story is that humans must stop creating and using nuclear weapons, and the only alternative is more destructive wars. This concludes Part 1 of the podcast. You're listening to Kaiju Vision Radio. Part 2 of the podcast is our opinion and discussion section. I think it's safe to say that we both... Very much like this film.
0: Oh, yeah. I, this film is pretty much universally
1: loved by all Godzilla fans. It's a very powerful experience. They're, unlike a lot of these sequels, there's not much levity. No. It is uh, quite dark. It is uh, it's a tough one. It's very bleak. Yes. I mean, we,
0: we talked about before about how King Kong and the Beast from 20,000 Fathoms are the immediate inspirations for this movie. But the tone is completely different from either one of those. Almost funereal at points. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this film is so well-respected that even,
1: that even people who dismiss the sequels love this movie. The last input that we haven't talked about yet that goes into this, besides Japanese culture, is the Bikini Atoll test on the 1st of March, 1954. That was the first underwater test of a nuclear weapon. It was also the fifth-largest bomb explosion ever in world history. It was called Castle Bravo, and it was a lot more destructive than initially projected, due to an error in calculations. Radiation was spread very far, partially due to an unanticipated wind direction change. It went 7,000 square kilometers total, going across 15 islands and atolls, and was the most accidental radiation spread by a U.S. nuclear test. Besides the South Pacific Islands, the Southwest United States had five times the radiation fallout that Japan did. The Lucky Dragon No. 5 incident occurred as a direct result of this. It was a fishing vessel, and the fallout rained down on the crew in the form of like a fine white dust-like substance, which gave them acute radiation syndrome. The dust collected in their hair and caused radiation burns. One of the sailors died from a secondary infection of hepatitis C from a blood infusion while the rest recovered. The man who died said that he hopes that he is the last victim of either an atomic or hydrogen bombing. The U.S. and Japan had strained relations as a result of this, and they quickly figured out a monetary compensation system to pay to the crew and to the Japanese government. The political fallout occurred very swiftly because of the magnitude and the consequences of the blast. The tragedy of the Lucky Dragon number five was also the worries about contaminated fish, which caused a blossoming of the anti-nuclear movement in Japan. And all of this occurred at the time that they were really making this film to begin with. Uh, there was Tanaka Tomiyuki Tanaka, and he had the idea of what if a dinosaur was made into a giant monster by the nuclear bomb. Yeah. And you'll
0: see a lot of these events reflected in the
1: film itself.
0: The, the movie opens with Godzilla attacking a, f- a fishing vessel, killing everyone on the ship except for a few survivors who died later. Yeah,
1: there are a lot of references to atomic bombings and to the war, too. There are a lot of, lots of history in this movie, definitely. It's, it's like everywhere. And the the first scene is a huge just wake up call right away, and we get pulled right into it. Everybody's on the ship and they're having a good time, and then all of a sudden, just boom. Yeah, and a
0: blinding light, and
1: yeah. the ship explodes, and and that was Gojira's first attack. Mm-hmm. One of the references to the H bomb is when there's a, a woman who's on the train. And she said she barely escaped the bomb in Nagasaki. And then she has to now put up with worrying about Godzilla.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Also in this scene on the train, the woman mentions atomic tuna, radioactive fallout, and now Godzilla to top it off. And she's referencing Castle Bravo with both of those references. Additionally, one of the men on the train says... I'll have to find a place to evacuate to. And then the other man says, evacuate again. I've had enough. And obviously saying evacuate again is a reference to the war. Then there's another one where someone mentions the H-bomb still hanging over Japan's head when Be- ref- when referring to Gojira.
0: Yeah, well, Yeah, because the the H-bomb tests were tied to the the creation of Godzilla, essentially.
1: There's a part where during Godzilla's attack on Tokyo... There's a woman and she's with her two children and she tells them, we're going to be with your father soon. And that might be a reference to the war, possibly. Mm-hmm. As far as the actors, probably one of my favorite Japanese actors of all time is Takashi Shimura. who He, he is was fantastic. Yeah, the unforgettable. Anybody who's seen Ikiru, that movie is fantastic. It made me cry. It was so amazing. Also, Akira Takarata. It's amazing just watching this because we've seen all of these sequels so many yeah. times, but he's so incredibly young in this.
0: Yes, he is. What didn't you say someone actually described him as the Japanese Cary Grant? Once? Right. Yeah. yeah. I think it's interesting to note, you know, talking about Mr. Shimura, about how there were people saying when they saw Akiru that he was the best actor in the world, but then when they watched
1: Gojira, they said nobody in this movie can act. Yeah, even though he's the exact same guy, that probably just went straight over their heads.
0: Yep. (laughs) Then we also have Akihiko Harata, who plays Dr. Sarazawa in this film, and he's easily the most iconic character in this movie. You talk to anybody about Sarazawa. I mean, the name Sarazawa was used again later in the Gareth Edwards film, and the fact that he's wearing an eye patch that became an iconic image. In fact, later on in the 80s, when Toho was announcing that they were going to make a new film, they actually had Harada appear wearing the eye patch to make that announcement.
1: Yeah, his character is so great, too. Just the, the dark, brooding, genius scientist who's making a super weapon. He's just... Got the whole mood and atmosphere thing down completely. The Sarazola character is a lot like Oppenheimer too, the original inventor of the nuclear bomb,
0: which is significant because he accidentally creates his own WMD in the form of the oxygen destroyer. Which yeah, I definitely think, a connect uh, connection. Yeah, yeah. There's the potential that if this had been an American production, given that you know he's a, a scientist who creates a super weapon and wears an eye patch. He might have been presented as a mad scientist he certainly looks like one but he's most definitely not a mad scientist
1: but he is uh uh, but instead he's a sort of fragile character really and and rather tragic sometimes he is a war veteran and his injury to his eye was in the was incurred in during the war
0: yeah he might have actually been presented as the villain, you know, with Ogata being this, you know, dashing hero who comes in and, you know, when he finds out that he has a weapon that could kill Godzilla, he just, and he says, no, I won't use it. And then Ogata just beats the snot out of it and takes the weapon and says, no, I'm going to go be the hero. I'm going to kill the monster.
1: And instead we have Sarazawa really the one who is driving the, the human plot line of this whole thing. Yeah. It, Everything's he, in his hands.
0: Yeah, he really does. In fact, if you, when you look at what's, you know, the the human plot that's going on in this, you end up being presented with three dilemmas that the characters that you know want some characters are are an, another are facing. There's one that's presented by Yamane who insists that Godzilla should be studied to learn how he can resist radiation. It's Sarazawa's dilemma, where he has the oxygen destroyer and must now choose between whether or not to use a weapon that is potentially more dangerous than the H bomb and Godzilla to kill Godzilla, who's the the threat of the moment and then you have Emiko who is in the middle of a love triangle having to choose between two different men and what ends up happening is Sarazawa resolves all of them with one decision which is that he will use the oxygen destroyer and then by doing so he decides yes I will take the risk in using this weapon yes Godzilla should be killed so that decision is so that dilemma is resolved and then he allows himself to be killed by the Oxygen Destroyer as well, which means Emiko does not have to choose between him or Agata
1: now. And the final, all of the plans for how to make the Oxygen Destroyer are gone once he is gone. Yes, because he burns his notes.
0: And then so then the only thing that's left at that point is his own knowledge of the Oxygen Destroyer. And he lets himself die so he can make sure that nobody can find him and then you know, drag it out of him.
1: As we mentioned in the summary, there is a situation where the kaiju plot and the events around it are interrupting the human plotline a lot. One, I think probably one of the biggest ones is when Emiko goes to Sarazawa to tell him about her affair, in, and he interrupts her by doing this thing with the oxygen destroyer, by dropping a little bit of it into the fish tank, and then scaring the crap out of her by making the fish tank you know, and all the fish just die in it. And then she is so distraught by that occurring that she doesn't have a chance to actually say what she went there to do anyway. She
0: was going there to reveal her secret to him. And instead he shares his secret with her and it terrifies her so much that she can't reveal her own secret to him at that moment.
1: I think it's interesting with Dr. Yamane that just like in Beast in 20,000 Fathoms, he's a scientist who once. Gojira to be protected and so that he can be studied. And the reason is that he wants to study Gojira's power to resist radiation, which is obviously a very big uh, prize, scientific prize, to be able to find the clue and and find the solution to that problem. And he sort of becomes an advocate for Gojira at at, at times. He really wants the scientific prize above all else. Regarding the anti-nuclear theme, Gojira clearly represents nuclear power, nuclear weapons, nuclear proliferation, nuclear testing, and the in, the kind of indiscriminate killing the way that nuclear things tend to do. Gojira represents also the nuclear curse that the Japanese seem to have. We have the two cities destroyed by atomic bombs, and then the one citizen killed by the hydrogen bomb test at Bikini Atoll, and the struggle in Japan for energy independence. We have, of course, the fukushima meltdown that occurred as part of the 311 triple disaster the earthquake the tsunami and the nuclear meltdown, meltdown.
0: yeah godzilla also represents natural disasters in this because japan as we've hinted at is a very disaster prone country the idea that it would have a, a monster that would essentially be a walking natural disaster doesn't seem like very much of a stretch you know, to put into a film like this.
1: And how he represents the destruction of the war mm. and how and like just like the firebombing of Tokyo, mm. the nuclear weapons hitting yeah. Hiroshima and uh Nagasaki, their imagery, there's imagery
0: in this film that very directly ties
1: back to
0: that and that was purposefully done. You know, it was meant those des- destruction scenes in Tokyo were meant to elicit those images of the fire bombings and the nuclear bombings in the audience's mind because it still would have been fairly fresh only
1: nine years after the war one of my favorite images from the film would definitely have to be the part when gojira picks up the train car and puts it in his mouth and then he lets it fall to the ground and it's such a big moment there yeah
0: it's an iconic image one of my favorites would be the actual deployment of the Oxygen Destroyer at the end of the film. It's a movie of great emotional gravity. It's when everything comes together in the movie. And it's also just some fantastic special effects on, this, on display in this. And the Oxygen Destroyer prop itself is it's a very memorable prop. It's an image that you talk to any Godzilla fan, you just show them just a basic outline of that prop and they're going to know what it is and what its significance is.
1: And then the Toho Theater is one of the buildings that gets destroyed <laughs> during this rampage. It's a like big self-reference <laughs> yeah, by the studio. Yeah, a little self-referential humor there, maybe. I don't know. That's kind of a weird thing to do. There's also the issue of the military. There's, it's been remarked that how can we never see the American military in these Godzilla movies defending japan are fighting the monsters and but i think the best explanation is that the self-defense force is around now and they're the ones who are going to defend japan from any attacks domestically
0: perhaps that's why you know you have a scene later on in the movie when godzilla is leaving tokyo and then the japanese fighter planes come in and they start firing at him and there are survivors on the shore and they're cheering the fighter planes as they attack him.
1: Yeah. And, and the, then the flip side of that is that there, there have been some commentary about how ultimately it might've been the military that drew Gojira further into the mainland and started the attack in the first place. Yeah. Be, or made definitely made it worse Yeah, and, because you had Yamane telling the military you'll just make it worse. Yeah. So it seemed like, and they didn't really listen to him, but like Yamane, I think he knew exactly what was going on, and he knew how to not provoke it. I don't know if that is a connection or anything to you know how the Japanese military provoked the United States into World War II. I don't
0: it's, know. It's I, it's I don't know if I
1: want to make that connection. Some yeah, have.
0: Yeah, I, it's it's just this film has a very interesting presentation. Of the Japanese military, and I don't know if you can necessarily go one way or the other with it, because there are points where it seems to be positive, and other points where it seems to be negative. It's it's a little hard to figure out what exactly this film's attitude
1: toward the Japanese military is. It's definitely ineffectual. That's one thing that everybody can agree on. Is that well, yeah, everything they do uh, and and try with all these methods are ineffectual because, and it makes godzilla look more and more invincible otherworldly and just impervious to man-made destructive forces
0: yeah which is a a trope that you'll see repeated very often in you know subsequent movies both in the godzilla series and elsewhere it's also a very common thing that you would see in a lot of science fiction and monster films already you know i mean i'm also thinking of how in the 1953 film version of War of the Worlds, the the Martian ships are immune to nuclear weapons.
1: We have two kind of conflicting points when discussing post-war Japan, and that is the concept of moving on versus the concept of never forgetting. Mm -hmm. And these two things are opposed to each other. When trying to move and turn the page on the occupation era, we end up having to to wrestle with these two concepts. You know, you, you want to never forget what happened. And at the same time, you have to what? You have to avoid dwelling on it, continuing that mental injury in a way. It, this movie was more about moving on and never forgetting. And, and it's about putting those, two, putting those two things together into this film. And that's kind of the way that everybody was able to try to try to move on and try to put an end to the post-occupation era, which the occupation ended in 1952, and then this movie was made and uh, released in 1954.
0: Something else that the creators of this film had discussed as a possible symbol for what Godra, or Godzilla if you prefer, represented was that he was a representation of the people who died during World War II, and that he was coming back to get revenge for them because of what had happened during the war. And it's a very interesting idea. It's not really shown in this film, but it is a concept that would be explored later, nearly 50 years after this film in the early 2000s. It's kind of a, like a revenge slash retribution idea. Yeah. It's interesting that these Japanese creators making their Japanese film would choose to
1: talk about something like that. This soon after the occupation and all that. So Ishiro Honda, of course, is the director, and we want to just mention this a tiny little bit. We'll be
0: talking Uh, about Honda a lot in our subsequent episodes. He directed the vast majority of the Showa-era films.
1: Yeah, and basically the, the primer is his experience in the war. And he basically he was drafted, and he fought for the Japanese army during the war, and then he was taken prisoner, and so he was a he was a POW. So he had um, not a very good war experience at all. I mean, most didn't. That's very likely where he got his various pacifist and humanist ideas that are so strongly expressed in the first Godzilla movie, and in the the sequels as well.
0: It's a a key theme that you see coming through with. Mo- not only the Showa-era films, but through most of the franchise in general. He had a very large influence.
1: Then we have the, the score. I mean, this is a big deal. Oh, yes, it is. This was the...
0: the I think it was the first big movie that composer Akira if- Ifakube got to work on. And he he created, more or less, the soul of Godzilla in this. And he came back for many of Toho's other films and their their tokusatsu films and he scored the majority of the showa era godzilla sequels he's created so many iconic themes not only in this film but
1: in you know in the subsequent films later he's really his 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 big uh strength before this was um writing military marches right
0: yeah, I believe so. In fact, the the thing that's interesting about Ifakube is that he do- didn't really have any formal music training, which probably accounts for his rather unique style. It's very bombastic. It, you know, it denotes how, you know, he's not someone who caters to formulas. He thinks outside the box because he taught himself how to compose music
1: one of the favorite pieces of mine that he did was the kaiju daisenso march which is played in this original film but then is, is played numerous times in various other films over the years that concludes our opinion and discussion section let's move on
0: you're listening to kaiju vision radio In part three of our podcast, we will be discussing a topic related to the film that will deal with events that were going on at the release of the film
1: and most likely had an influence on the creation of the film itself. So our topic for this episode is the occupation of Japan by the United States.
0: And it should be noted that this is the only time in Japan's history where they have ever been occupied by a foreign country.
1: To start off with, Japan was very much a in a very, very bad place at the end of the war and at the time of the surrender. Some of the biggest things that that really occurred at that you know were going on at that time. There were a number of cities that were virtually destroyed. Also the military Japan's military was scattered dead, so many were had to be repatriated back to Japan. There was complete disarray socially and economically. Military supplies were repossessed by various groups and various people, and then a large black market erupted. And of course the standard of living fell dramatically. 40% of urban areas destroyed, 30% homeless. The Japanese people had grown to distrust the military. And this really culminates in in what is referred to as kind of a general exhaustion of the people of Japan. And food was very hard to come by. So we had just a society in, in free fall at this point. It was very difficult to see, you know, to try to think of a path forward after all of these things had happened. And in fact, there's a word for this, which is the, it's called the state of lethargy or kiyodatsu. The other big cultural thing that that was a kind of a snapback from the imperial Japanese era, which is the uh, kasutori culture, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like a well, it's been described as a cult of degeneracy and nihilism, and overall, it's a rejection of the imperial military standards that had been around for quite a while, and a lot of it involved like you know like going to bars and dancing drinking, things like that. It was a reaction, though, to the imperial values that had been really ingrained in society. And that was the idea of wholesomeness in those imperial values. There was a denunciation of liberalism, individualism, uh, materialism, and utilitarianism. It was against the Western ideas of consumption. Yeah, Even though the causatory culture... It can be described as, you know, oh, it's degenerate or whatever. There, there's a flip side to that because they're doing something that is real. They're yeah. doing something that's honest. And at least they're being honest with themselves as opposed to living this very odd, uh, difficult duality. Yeah, because uh, the, the, where you have, uh, you know, you're being taught about wholesomeness.
0: Do as I say, not as I do sort of a mentality. And the, the thing of it is, is that causatory culture has actually survived in one form or another into modern day Japan, but it's often used now as to describe certain forms of Japanese literature now, usually the very pulpy sort of stories, that you know, like crime
1: novels and all of that. Yeah, so these, these values that ended up being introduced in the post-war era were, were more individualistic, more realistic, more truthful, in a way more human, and more genuine. As a result of these things, the Japanese wanted and craved things that were new. The word "shin" being used in in front of things, basically "shin" in this in this aspect of it, meaning new. You wanted a new Japan, a new this, a new that. There was a big desire for how do how do they move ahead? We had one man at the top of this whole situation, and it was General MacArthur. He was an extremely important figure, and he was the one that, that guided everything. He knew what was going on. He had everybody telling him what was going on at the time, and he was the one who was making so many of the decisions about how to, how to proceed. Once MacArthur and the occupation started, the top level basically was like a super government where you had MacArthur and everybody at the, with the occupation. That was the top And then below that, you had the emperor. And then below that, you had the bureaucracy. Yeah, one of the goals
0: was to actually drive a wedge between the emperor and the military.
1: MacArthur's, one of the biggest components was to democratize a country. It's a tricky thing to democratize a country from from the top down. Japan was democratized, liberalized, pro-Americanized... Uh, Economic growth was uh, definitely a big factor in the later part of the occupation, and then as well as a constitution that was ratified that enshrined demilitarization. The police force was decentralized. An American-style school system was instituted. Shintoism was decoupled from the state and no longer the, the official state religion. Labor standards and trade unions were introduced. Women were given the right to vote political prisoners were released, Uh, land was redistributed, Korea regained its independence, Manchuria was returned to China, war criminals were tried, convicted, and executed, and Japan's ability to wage war offensively was eliminated. The U.S. also sent billions in food aid to the starving Japanese people, and many of these things were meant to stabilize the country as much as possible. When this movie premiered, the... Audience cheered when the National Diet Building gets
0: destroyed. Yeah, this is a very interesting story.
1: Yeah, so th- there's this really big scene at the Diet Building when the evidence is presented that Gojira exists. There's a man and a woman that are speaking for the most part in the Diet, and they get two and it's for, they're for obviously representing probably two different political parties, and they get into a spirited a spirited exchange about what to do with that information. And when I first saw this, I was very much intrigued. And I wondered why it was a group of women versus a group of men with them disagreeing and the man basically telling the woman, shut up. I did some reviewing over the studies I did on Japan and realized after the war ended, the first multi-party election was held in 1946. Mm -hmm. This included the already founded Communist Party of Japan, the Japan Socialist Party, the Japan Liberal Party, the Japan Progressive Party, and the Japan Cooperative Party. At the same time, women were allowed to vote for the first time in Japanese history. 39 women were elected to the Diet in this first election, and one-third of the voters in that election were women. The U.S. first had women's enfranchisement in 1920, so this was quite a bit later for allowing women in Japan to vote. So not only was Japan going through all of these things, but women's suffrage was thrown right into all of the rest of these changes part of the public, they probably resented women getting the right to vote and serve in public office, and so the scene was a representation of the change that that was very... uh, it was going on, and had gone on during the occupation. The film is expressing that sort of Japanese society, traditionally, which is pretty patriarchal, is dealing with this new system like they're having to deal with everything else. And it doesn't. it isn't a very flattering scene. They bicker the people who presented the evidence are looking at each other like, oh, these people are so incompetent. And I think the reason why they cheered when the national diet building was destroyed was, I think what I think the Japanese people were fed up with government and all of the problems that the previous government had created, but also the way that this one was just a little bit different. They had developed a, I guess you could say a
0: minor distrust in government, which I would say, as Americans, is something that we can certainly identify with.
1: Yeah, in the U.S. currently, some of the lowest approval ratings are reserved for members of Congress. And so the Japanese seem to have the right ideas about the, the sort of downsides that exist in representative democracy. I think that's what that scene basically means. It's also interesting that you have the women taking the more progressive path politically and saying, no, this evidence needs to be released. And then meanwhile, you have a man who's almost like he's representing the old guard saying, no, we shouldn't be releasing this information. It will upset people too much.
0: Along with the enfranchisement of women, there was some, there was, uh, some radical shifts that went on during the occupation in terms of the attitude toward, toward marriage specifically. And you see this illustrated in Gojira with the love triangle between Sarazawa, Emiko, and Ogata. Where Emiko and Sarazawa are in an arranged engagement, which is a more traditional sort of Japanese culture thing to do where marriages are determined by the parents. Whereas Emiko is in love with Ogata, he is the man that she has chosen to marry, which is very much a modern idea that was introduced during the occupation by uh, the American soldiers. They brought the practice of dating with them, which is not something that you would see practiced in Japan. Along with that, they were seeing American servicemen be very open with their affections with their wives or girlfriends if they were able to come over to Japan and visit them. It was something that they were not used to seeing So this subplot in the film is very much showing a Japan that was in transition, where you had this
1: clash of the old and the new. Yeah, it's a representation of the changes that were going on at the time in relationships.
0: It's interesting to note that even though you have this love triangle and Ogata is the man that Emiko has chosen for herself, she doesn't really show him any sort of affection in the film, even though she's, she is in love with him, she, you know, it, in a lot of ways she conducts herself the same way with Ogata as she does with Sarazawa, which in a way is also a representation of kind of that old-time Japan
1: culture. Also, the, the aspects of marriage changed um, after the occupation in that women were viewed as more of an equal partner in marriages and sex during marriage uh, was not so hidden away and was not looked at as, as, as a, a sort of afterthought. This was not unheard of in Japanese culture because in much earlier times, that was actually the case where, where women did have, you know, in previous periods in history, they did have larger uh, roles. The legal domination of the man of the familial unit that also disappeared uh, after the war Mm-hmm. And so there was no longer that that kind of a, a power dynamic, legally in the in the family system in mm-hmm. Japan. Yeah, sex was starting to be viewed as pleasurable for
0: the woman as well. When before that it hadn't been seen as such for a long time.
1: Which leads us more to the Cold War direction of the occupation. It was that, and that's where we kind of get the two kind of opposing forces going on in the occupation mindset, which was. Promoting democracy by fiat, which is democracy by fiat is a very interesting concept. <laughs> but you have trying to grow democracy and at the same time trying to inoculate Japan against this, the threat of the Soviet Union and of communism in general. Yeah, which, which was, was spreading huge.
0: rapidly through Asia right after the war had ended.
1: Yeah, and as and the Cold War intensified during the occupation. Of course, Korea... The Korean War occurred, too, which also intensified things in East Asia. But there were a number of Cold War goals that the United States had during the occupation that they immediately started seeing necessary to implement. And so on one hand, you have the occupation encouraging things like labor unions and letting uh, the Communist Party officials out of prison And allowing more free exchange of ideas and there was a big expansion of uh, sort of socialist thought and and that using socialism as a way to prevent another war and and using it as an alternative to nationalism so you have socialism gaining ground and communism gaining ground in Japan because of freedom of thought but at the same time you don't want to encourage these things too much because as a result, then you could have that phenomenon spill over into uh, to a point that it counters American and Japanese interests. Because obviously the Japanese old guard were, were against these ideas as well. So the Cold War goals that the United States had during this time was one, stop the Soviet Union's advancement and influence in East Asia which this was, a, this was a big thing because of the Soviet Union's expansionist philosophy, uh, ideologically as well as territorially. Mm-hmm. Another one was to facilitate Japan's integration into capitalism and make Japan a good place for American companies and corporations to do business. Another one was to have a military alliance with Japan in order to protect Japan against the Soviet Union and China and serve as a bulwark against the Soviet Union and communism also to have a friendly country to host U.S. military bases in order to project American power in East Asia and to use that military power in Cold War hotspots in the region. It was a massive expansion of the reach of American military forces.
0: And that became a huge asset to the United States during the, the Korean War just a few years later.
1: Another goal was to protect the Japanese right wing and to keep the emperor in order to stabilize the country against left-wing communism. The LDP, or the Liberal Democratic Party of Japan, uh, has been in power for the vast majority of the post-war period in Japan. It was viewed by the United States that they would be a preferable party rather than the left-wing parties, because they did not want left-wing parties to exert too much influence. Towards the latter part of the occupation... There was an effort to purge bureaucrats in the government who were communist and also in the media of the country to uh, try to temper some of the more uh, left-wing thinkers and creators in Japan. Because I think MacArthur, especially, he was a big Cold Warrior. He fought against communism so much, and he did not want to see Japan become a communist country and so these were all, all of these Cold War goals were working at the same time all of this other pro-democracy stuff was happening. And so you have to reconcile these two things together and, and make it work, which that's not a, an easy prospect.
0: No, not at all.
1: Because the, some of the drafts that the right wing tried to create of the Constitution when the new Constitution process was work, being worked out, MacArthur basically put his foot down and said, "Okay, none of these ideas here are going far enough in what we need to do, in that we need to go by the Potsdam Agreement and various other documents that have set out what we're supposed to do. And the United States, we ended up basically writing the Constitution, long short of it. That document was then translated into Japanese rather awkwardly. And it was kind of odd because... The American version of the Constitution, the English version, it it sounds uh, and reads a lot more easily than the translated Japanese version, which looked rather clunky in comparison, language-wise. And it was because the original document was in in English. Some of the, the goals that needed to be set forth was the emperor's head of state. His duties and powers will be in accordance with the Constitution. Uh, another one was war. As a sovereign right of the Japanese nation is abolished, and that Japan renounces it as an instrument for settling disputes, and that there would be no army, navy, or air force will be authorized, and no rights of belligerency. Uh, Another one was that the feudal system of Japan will cease, no rights of peerage, and no patent of nobility, and also that the budget would be managed after the British system of budgeting. And that gets us to Article 9, which is the renunciation of war. Article 9 originally, as it states, is war as a sovereign right of the nation, or and the threat or use of force is forever renounced as a means of settling disputes. And the maintenance of land, sea, and air forces, as well as other war potential, will never be authorized, and the right of belligerency of the state will not be recognized. And so this is a very emphatic-sounding Part of the Constitution, yeah. This declaration,
0: yeah. It's often referred to as the peace clause, yeah.
1: And it renounces war, in the in the World War II kind of way, belligerency, you know, invasions, etc. Yeah.
0: In fact, there are some. It's interesting to note that there are some sources that I looked up that said that this was actually not necessarily something imposed by the Allies. It was done by the Japanese government and. Some believe that it was actually the work of a guy named Baron Kijuro Shidahara, who was the 44th Prime Minister of Japan, who was a staunch pacifist both before and after the
1: war. It was mostly appointed by the Allies, though, and Shidahara himself was appointed by the United States to be Prime Minister. He was not elected. And he resigned once the first elected, newly elected government in Japan was installed.
0: Another key facet of the new constitution is article 21, which abolished all barriers to freedom of the press and stipulated that there would be no censorship of any kind, which is a little bit ironic given what was going on in the occupation by the, you know, MacArthur and the super government as we termed it.
1: Yeah, there was a significant amount of censorship by the authorities in the occupation. It it covered all sources of media. Uh, It involved obscuring some things about the war while at the same time uh, very much curtailing what could be mentioned. And there there was a huge list of stuff that was uh, censored. But the main part of it was criticism of the occupation. One of the things that was obscured was the presence of the occupation. things that like the pictures of the Jeeps and pictures of the the English signs at the base at some of the occupation areas, and the amount of money spent on supporting the occupation troops, that was censored, and it was one third of the of the Japanese defense budget but this was this was not a- allowed to get out another part that was censored was the record and the pictures of the areas of nagasaki and hiroshima that were that were bombed after the atomic bombings and so that was that was censored to quite a degree and then terms like the great east asia war that was changed to the pacific war terms were changed around in order to More accurately reflect what the occupation forces were trying to trying to get across. It was kind of about demilitarizing the language. Yeah,
0: yeah. Even the word censorship was censored in all of this. In other words, yeah. Not only, yeah, yeah, it it couldn't talk about. it So not not only were things about the war being censored, you weren't even allowed to mention that you were being censored about saying these things. But I think it's a difficult thing you know, for me to, you know, to wrap my head around this. But I think in the long run, it, it served the occupation well. I understand why they did it. It was a means of preventing, ag- uh, 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 curtailing agitators, making sure that you could maintain order at, at a period of time that was very turbulent for Japan.
1: Yeah. It's, and it's important to note that there was a lot of censorship during the empire and, and under the empire the the amount of political censorship too under during the war was very intense you know you had leaders of the communist party in jail and all these all these other things and so it was a trade off you know if the empire had stayed around then that censorship probably would have gone forever
0: oh yeah most and, likely
1: yeah and under you know under the occupation when the american occupation force left at least that at that point the censorship ended And so at least least that. Yeah, and
0: Article twenty one was able to take full effect by that point.
1: A lot of this movie would not have been able to be shown if this movie were made during the occupation. The censors really would have had a field day and they would have gotten rid of huge portions of it. So this is really one of the first breaths of fresh air where things like all of these viewpoints got to actually be expressed. All these references to Atomic bombs to the war, they would not have been, they would not have gotten past. And so, this is really about freedom of expression. It's definitely one of the biggest ways that the Japanese people were able to move on. During the Empire of Japan, their outlook was basically that they would be the leading Asian people to. One, liberate all these colonies that the West had in Asia, but also that Japan would lead a sort of pan Asian empire. We went, and, and then there's this massive change, and we go from Japan leading an empire to Japan basically becoming part of another empire in the way that the united states brought japan into their sphere of influence for quite a while uh, all the way through the early 70s okinawa for instance was basically a u.s military colony it wasn't called that but it, it essentially was and then all of the united states military bases were built and of course after the occupation those bases didn't go away they're still there today
0: yeah um, although those were built at the behest of the japanese it should be noted
1: with their consent, yeah. Mm-hmm. The biggest interesting thing about that, though, is that Japan basically became America's favorite son. And a very important ally in that part of the world. Yeah, the most important, most important ally.
0: Yeah, the, the goal of the occupation was not so much to... Well, it wasn't so much. It, the goal of the occupation was to go in, more or less rehabilitate Japan set them up with a new government, help them to heal from the war, and then we got out of there and left them to govern themselves, to take care of themselves while maintaining an alliance with them. There was no inclination to make them a part of the United States or to annex them into, you know, like a U.S. territory, like Guam or something like that, even though there were people in Japan who were telling MacArthur that that's what they wanted. You know, they wanted to become a permanent colony of the united states or to be annexed by the united states and which would more or less turn japan into well at that time would have been the 49th state so you know what a bizarre parallel universe that would
1: have been japan as a state of the united states (laughs) and while it wasn't a majority of the japanese by far that that believes something like this but the thing is there were a lot of japanese Who, or at least a significant number, who were scared of the possibility of the reforms of the occupation being undone by the old guard politicians of Japan. There were so many changes in, like, you know, labor laws and corporate practices and so many of the things that were changed, and especially, like, the constitution. There were a lot of, there are some Japanese that were very concerned about what happens after the United States leaves and what could happen if the old guard just comes in and tries to reverse all of these things as soon as it's done. Which is a legitimate concern because there are still
0: those in Japan who have wanted to see those changes undone.
1: We have the so called four presence of the occupation. We wanted to go over. What these things are and why they're viewed as presents. Specifically women's enfranchisement, respect for human rights, gender equality, and the liberation of sex, uh, sex and freedom of speech. First, women's enfranchisement, which that existed as a movement before the war, but it just never got to their goal. So the women's suffrage movement finally got what they wanted during the occupation. Western standards of human rights were incorporated and it made society freer. This wasn't really one of the Western things that Japan had really imported to this point. And now it did finally get instituted under the occupation. Gender equality and liberation of sex, both of those, the, the, both of those things fall under the uh, sort of sexual awakening that occurred after the repression during the empire and we hinted at this before in the form of women getting a more equal footing in the family and in marriage uh, life and also sex being made not such a private thing uh, exclusively. And so that that changed women's rights. And then also freedom of speech. Uh, and I would throw in freedom of speech or press along with that, but it allowed the Japanese people to voice their opinions and have demonstrations and rallies and be able to Exert their political freedom of speech in a in a greater magnitude than had previously been allowed, and be, because the setup under the empire was that basically, we you can have freedom of speech until we decide that you don't, <laughs> and that that was something that had to be done away with. I find it interesting
0: that three of these four presents all have to do with giving more rights to marginalized groups. Uh, it, it, you can tell that it was very much a, an issue that the United States discovered upon coming to Japan and beginning the occupation.
1: If anybody's ever heard of or read the book called On Democracy, that basically is the, one of the biggest points of democracy is having majority rule, but what? Protecting the rights of minorities. I think various enlightenment aspects of American life and of Western civilization in general, uh, a lot of these Enlightenment principles did not really get to Japan until this point, when, you, when we finally said, okay, you need to actually incorporate these aspects of Enlightenment thought that, I mean, Enlightenment thought drove the U.S. Constitution in many, in many ways, and the Bill of Rights. So you got this, this sort of Bill of Rights spirited document, in the new constitution, and that was where a lot of these new freedoms were, were rooted in. The occupation can be characterized as part of what is called neocolonialism, which parts of that involve cultural imperialism, as well as globalization, in order to change and colonize, in a way, Japan through cultural means. But there's no getting around the fact that we did change things culturally quite a bit after the war and during the occupation. But it is hard to deny that we did use uh, some cultural imperialism during the occupation and we changed families, we changed marriage, we changed sex and how it's viewed in culture. There are a lot of methods that were used to westernize and globalize Japan. Another thing that changed was the emperor. He was changed from a sovereign into a symbol. And that's not something that everybody really agreed with at the time, but at the time, that's really what what needed to be done. But the thing is, as time has gone on, we now see the peace constitution and things like Article 9, they are starting to become out of date. That is primarily because of the rise of China, but also the need for greater stability in the region, because Article 9 is becoming obsolete at the time that Japan needs a real military the most. The alternate view is that over time, Article 9 has effectively lessened the military capability of Japan at a time when fear about conflict is at a nearly all-time high.
0: Well, it's not just China that Japan is concerned about. To be honest, Japan is a relatively small country surrounded by a lot of unfriendly neighbors, most notably North Korea, which has been a major threat to pretty much everybody in that entire region, especially lately. But it is undeniable that the occupation changed a lot of things culturally for the Japanese. So it would make... Total sense that there would be those, even this many years after the occupation, who would want to reclaim what they lost and to bring back some of those traditions. I don't think they necessarily want to go back to pre war Japan, but there were a lot of things that I, you know, that they look at as being good things about their culture that they, you know, they don't want to lose. And, you know, and to lose your country's tradition you know, is to lose a part of what makes you who you are, lose a part of your national identity. So it makes total sense. And Article 9, Article 9 has long been a, a contentious issue for the Japanese. There's been a lot of debate over it. I, you know, a lot of the, the research that I've been doing for the for the various podcast episodes has, has brought up Article nine and its interpretation and how it points it's either constrained the Japanese or it's required that they do some almost I guess you say weird legal gymnastics so they can make sure that they don't violate their own constitution in the operations that they do with their military. And with how turbulent the region has been becoming and the trend is now turning toward wanting to repeal that particular article so that the Japanese will be able to have a standing military. But that's something that's been growing uh, over the past several decades, which, if once you look at these Godzilla movies, you can see that attitude reflect, reflected in the films, especially as time goes on.
1: Yeah, the desire to be patriotic and to like your country's military and not have it be this taboo... And yeah. instead become have have be able to have more of a normal quote unquote country that you can be patriotic about and not and not feel bad about it. Yeah, it seems as though because the, like the anti-militarist opinions were were so strong in this film and and then over time you can see that evolution about the attitude about the military.
0: Yeah, that anti-militarism that pacifistic streak is very strong throughout the Showa series. But then after the Showa series in the seventies or eighties, the attitude of the Japanese people toward the military started to become more positive. And once you get to the Heisei and especially the millennial series of films, you start to see that more positive
1: attitude begin to
0: manifest.
1: At this time, we at Kaiju Vision Radio want to dedicate this episode of our podcast To the victims and everyone else affected by the disaster which took place on March 11th, 2011.
0: Our thoughts and our prayers go out to all of those who were affected by those disasters and are still being affected by those disasters even now, six years later. Our next episode will be the Americanized version of Gojira entitled Godzilla King of the Monsters, which was released in 1956 and it stars a pre-Perry Mason Raymond Burr. If you'd like to get a hold of us and send us some feedback, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and on Facebook.
1: Our podcast is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, our YouTube channel, and on our website, kaijuvision.com. Thanks to Audiophiliac for creating our theme and bumper music, www.fiverr.com slash audiophiliac. If you like our podcast, please support us on Patreon. I'm Nathan Marchand, and I'm the podcast webmaster. And I'm Brian Churchill, and I edited this podcast. Sayonara!